If you're uh, a first-time visitor here at Grace and Peace or have only begun attending recently, you might be wondering what in the world is going on. You see, I'm not pastor here, and neither are any of the guys that have been parading through the pulpit here for the last couple of months. This church has been without a pastor since this summer. Recently, they have chosen a group of men and women to bear the responsibility of seeking out and identifying and working with the elders to call a new pastor. Any members of the pastor search committee that are here, please stand. Okay, I want you to take a good look. If you don't know their names, find out their names before they leave, okay? And what I really want you to do is to pray for them every day. This is a big responsibility, and thank you for taking it. Please be seated now. Uh, I've not had the opportunity to talk with any of you about what you're actually looking for in a new pastor, but I imagine I can imagine what you're looking for, right? On one hand, all of you want something different, a different set of strengths, a different set of ages, a different set of skills, a different kind of personality, right? Uh, on the other hand, you all want something that's very much the same, too. You want someone who is like you, but better, right? Uh, you're like my father. Uh, he has three sons. He never showed any anxiety about who any of us were going to marry or if we were ever going to marry. Uh, so when I met Mary Jane, now my wife, when I was living in Europe, and they had no idea that she existed, much less that I had gotten engaged to her until I called to tell them. And when I called, my father's response was just, how wonderful! Yeah, you found somebody who put up with you. I never thought you could find it, you know? Didn't know you had it in you here. But my father only had one daughter, and she was the apple of his eye. Uh, and in his opinion, no one was good enough for her. But if she was going to be married, he wanted her to marry someone like himself, but better, kind of a mix between him and the Apostle Paul, right? Uh, not one of you would be impressed with a candidate with this resume. Country of origin, Egypt. Education, PhD in government, University of Cairo. Family background, adopted and raised by a non-Christian family. Theological education, none. Church background, none. And to top it all off, when you do the background check on him, you find out that he's wanted for murder. This is not the resume of your new pastor, but it is the resume of the most famous prophet in the Old Testament. In the last few weeks, we've watched God preserve Moses' life in the face of official royal attempts to kill him. We've seen him grow up in a position of privilege in Pharaoh's house. We've also seen him throw it all away. He commits murder 
and runs away into exile in order to avoid the consequences. If this were merely a human story, this would be the story of the guy who had it all, the guy who was elected by his classmates to be most likely to succeed, but instead throws it all away and ends up in prison, right? But it's not that kind of story at all. It's the story of God's dealing with his people. And that's always a very different kind of story. Last week, we looked briefly at God's call of Moses. It starts in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, ends in chapter 4 of, not Genesis, Exodus. I do know the difference here. I don't have time to read it all this morning, but TJ is going to read parts of us for chapters 3 and 4, and then we will refer backwards and forwards as we need to in order to put the pieces together. Let's dive in. Exodus 3, 7 through 8, 10 through 14, chapter 4, 10 through 13. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth you what you shall speak but he said oh my lord please send someone else this is the word of the lord let's pray together dear god i pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts and minds would be acceptable to you now i pray it in christ's name amen why did god choose moses why did he call him to do this it's tempting to give the American answer to this question. You know the American answer. God could see his potential as a leader. After all, 
he had the right family background, had the right education, had the right skill set. All he needed was the right opportunity and a kick in the pants to get him going, right? Any of you ever read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Uh, Stephen Covey wrote this book back 1989. It's kind of become a classic in the business community now. Uh, he says that good leaders are not born, they are made. In particular, they develop seven habits. First, they are proactive, especially they take responsibility for their own failures. Second, you're to begin with the end in mind. That is, you're to be goal-oriented if you want to be a leader. A good leader puts first things first. He prioritizes. He thinks win-win. You look for mutually beneficial solutions to problems. A good leader seeks first to understand, then to be, under, under, to, to be understood. He synergizes. He tries to be a good team player. And then last of all, he sharpens the saw. He takes care of himself. Now, if you measure Moses by Covey's yardstick, even after he led the people of Israel out of Egypt, he fails on every point. He's not a leader. He's a loser. Why did God choose him? Well, it seems, not just here, but throughout the scriptures, that God has a soft spot in his heart for losers. Think about it. In a culture that honored the firstborn, God showed a persistent preference for the secondborn. Abel, not Cain. Jacob, not Esau. In the midst of a world that worships beautiful women, he chose the plain one, Leah, to be the great, great something grandmother of Jesus. <laughs> not the pretty one, not Rachel. When the people wanted a king, God overlooked age and experience and gave them a young boy, David. And when his own son was born, it was not into a position of power or authority, but under the most questionable of circumstances. God has a fondness for losers. That's why he chose you. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, 1 Corinthians 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The scriptures tell us over and over again, God doesn't look at us the way that we look at ourselves. He's not impressed by the same things that we are impressed by. So when Moses says here, in chapter 3, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the people out of Egypt? He's not being modest. He's telling the truth. Back in chapter 2, things were different. 
Moses was on top of the world. He was a member of the royal family, and he thought he was ready to lead the people of Israel. So when he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Once upon a time, Moses had a very high opinion of his own abilities. He was like Peter in the New Testament on the Last Supper when he says to Jesus, everybody else might desert you, but I'm not going to. I would die for you first. And when the high priest's servant tries to arrest Jesus in the garden. Peter, of course, is the first one to pull out his sword and whack off his ear, trying to protect Jesus. But when Peter's life is threatened, he denies him three times and ran away. Moses did the same thing here in Exodus 2. When his life was threatened, he ran away too. And in running away, he learned a valuable lesson. I can't trust myself. It's a lesson everyone needs to learn. And in order for Moses to learn that lesson, God had to call him. Moses saw a bush burning, but not burning up, and he thought, I'll turn aside to see this site. We looked at this last week. He thought he was asking, acting on his own initiative. But he found, much to his surprise, that God was calling him. The sad truth, according to the scriptures, is that no one seeks God unless God calls him. Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Now, does that seem like a bit of an exaggeration to you? An overstatement. After all, all of us know people who are seeking God. Spiritual searchers, you know. My life is lacking in something. I think I'll turn to religion and see if I can find something that satisfies me. When they do this, they think the initiative is mine and the choice is mine too. It's like shopping for a new outfit, you know. Uh, a spiritual version of extreme makeover. I'm going to reinvent myself. But according to the Bible, if you are searching, it's because God has called you. And when you find him, he won't just give you a spiritual makeover. He'll have a new agenda for your life. It's easy to think, you know, I know my problems. I know the things I need to fix. I just need a little help in fixing them, right? Uh, we look to God to do that for us. The problem with this is that God's never content just to be your helper. He's never content just to be your social secretary and help you get your life in order a little bit more. He has his own goals in mind. I love this old quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, imagine yourself as a living house God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. 
you knew that those jobs needed doing, and you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense to you. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. I imagine here in Exodus 4 that Moses had the rest of his life planned out. <laughs> and the plan was something like this. He was a very good shepherd for the rest of his life, which was very long. Instead, he got, I've chosen you to lead my people out of slavery. But Moses was a weak man. So he replied, who am I? Why should anyone believe me? Please send somebody else. It's an all too common response amongst the people that God chooses for leadership. Any of you ever hear Felix Mendelssohn's Oratorio, Elijah? It's glorious music. You should listen to it sometime. Uh, in the Oratorio, Elijah, the tenor soloist speaks for Elijah. And his first song is this passage from Scripture. As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Dramatic stuff, right? And for three years and six months, it did not rain in Israel. And then Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal. Let's each build an altar. We'll sacrifice bulls on them. You can call out to Baal. I'll call out to Jehovah. And the one who answers by fire, he's God. And the prophets of Baal go first. And it's the choir that is singing the parts of the prophets of Baal. Baal, hear us. Baal, hear us. And then the tenor soloist is mocking them. He's saying, eh, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's on vacation. Call a little louder. Finally, it's Elijah's turn. But he has the altar and the bull on it drenched with water three times before he steps forward and prays, Lord, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And the scriptures record the result like this. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then they fell upon the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, and killed them. All in all, a much more impressive undertaking than a burning bush. But in the next chapter, when Jezebel, the queen, 
hears of this, and she threatens to kill Elijah. He runs away and hides in a cave. And there the Lord speaks to him and says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answers, Haven't you heard? They're trying to kill me. Elijah was a weak man, too, like Moses, like all of God's servants. So in Exodus 4, verse 14, we're told, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses as it is against us for our lack of faith. After all, Jesus reminded us in Luke 17, it doesn't take much faith, just a little bit. Faith enough the size of a grain of mustard seed will do. And we're told in Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But in Hebrews, we're told something else, too, to encourage us. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in times of need. God didn't just get angry with Moses. He sympathized with him. You don't feel up to this? I'll give you my staff. With it you will part the waters of the Red Sea. With it you will bring water from the rock. I'll give you Aaron, who is better with words than you are. I'm not calling you to follow me alone. But most of all, I'll give you myself. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Who is it that speaks to Moses? The angel of the Lord. Biblical figure, hard to identify. I talked a little bit about it last week. Sometimes he speaks for the Lord. Sometimes he speaks as the Lord. And that's the case here. It's not as confusing as it seems. The word angel just means messenger. And it's suggested that when the messenger speaks as the Lord, it's Christ himself who's speaking. And the tenderness and the sympathy that he shows to Moses is the same tender and sympathy he shows to us. God's servants, all of them, are weak, sinful men. They are men whose faith is not as it should be. Francis Schaeffer said it well. Among religious writings, the Bible is unique in its attitude to great men. Even many Christian biographies puff up the men they describe. But the Bible exhibits the whole man, so much so that it's almost embarrassing at times. If we would teach our children to read the Bible truly, it would be a good vaccination against cynical realism 
from the non-Christian side. Because the Bible portrays its characters as honestly as any debunker or modern cynic ever could. Of course, usually we think about the strong points of the biblical men, and that's right. Normally, we should look at the victory of biblical characters, the wonder of their closeness to God, and the exciting ways God used them according to the faith and faithfulness they displayed. But let us not be embarrassed by the other side, the Bible's candor even about its greatest leaders, its portrayal of their weaknesses quite without embarrassment and without false show. Paul wrote to Romans, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, a simple statement, although stronger in the Greek than it seems to be in the authorized version. The Greek actually says, all sin, past tense, and all are coming short, present tense, of the glory of God. Paul was not merely saying that all men sinned before becoming Christians, but that all Christians continue to come short of God's glory. This is the biblical picture, even of its heroes. The Bible is painfully realistic about the weaknesses of God's servants. But when we encounter it in our leaders, we have a tendency to respond with cynicism. Why did we choose him? I didn't like him from the beginning. I knew it wasn't going to go well. You know the feelings. But we're told to respond to it in the scriptures with prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You should pray for your leaders daily, for government officials, for the elders of this church, for the men and women on the pastor search committee, that God would lead them as they look for the man who will lead this church. You should do so because God commands it. But you should also do so because they need it. That God delights and glorifies himself in showing his strength in their weakness. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 12. The Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. Dear God, we pray that you would make your power perfect in the weaknesses of our leaders. You would set them free from the power of sin and death. You would teach them wisdom to serve you. And when they sin, teach them to teach us 
how to repent quickly, gladly, joyfully, that we might learn from their example. Please guide our elders, guide the pastor search committee, and the man who, by your grace, will be the next pastor of this church. Equip them despite their weaknesses, through your grace in their weaknesses, to lead us in following you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.